Mark Twain said, don't tell people your troubles. Half the people don't care, and the other half are glad of them. That's a pretty cynical view of life. Half the people don't care, the other half are glad of them. Paul, this morning, wants to make it absolutely clear that though he has bad news for many of the children of Israel, he certainly is not glad about that bad news. He had the unpleasant task to inform them that many of them were lost, that their trusting in their Jewish heritage as being sufficient to make them in a right relationship with God would not cut it. That one is not considered a child of Israel simply because one is a physical descendant of Israel, but rather they must be a spiritual descendant as well. In Romans chapter 9, verse 6, Paul states, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So it wasn't just a matter of being a physical descendant of Abraham or of Israel, but it was a spiritual descendant that was in view. It was essential for Paul that his fellow Jews understood that the difficult things that he had to say to them were not coming from a spirit of apathy or indifference and certainly not a place of hatred or malice. Quite the opposite. He had a very genuine concern for his fellow Jews. You see, all too often, people assume that if we tell them bad news, and especially about their spiritual condition, that if we tell people that they are lost, that they naturally assume that we must dislike them, or that we must have something against them, or that perhaps we even hate them. Paul wants it to be perfectly understood that he has a tremendous concern for his fellow Jews who are going to be lost. The theme this morning is that Paul has a genuine, personal, and intense concern for his Jewish brothers who are lost and have squandered the great spiritual privileges that they have enjoyed. Let me say that again. The theme, Paul has a genuine, personal, and intense concern for his Jewish brothers who are lost and have squandered the great spiritual privileges that they have enjoyed. This morning, we're going to look at the reality of Paul's concern, the extent of Paul's concern, and the reason for Paul's concern, all from Romans 9, 1 to 5. First, the reality of Paul's concern for his lost brothers and sisters. Paul's concern for his fellow brothers uh, is authentic, genuine, and is not feigned or put on. What Paul is about to say is absolutely amazing. It is incredible. And so it may appear to be ingenuous, for it is hard to believe. It sounds like hyperbole or exaggeration. And so he prefaces what he is about to say 
by emphasizing the truthfulness of what is to come next. In three different ways, Paul stresses that what he's about to say is absolutely sincere. First, the sincerity of what Paul is about to say is stated positively. Verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am telling you the truth in Christ. Paul is a believer in Jesus Christ, and speaking the truth is important to him. And he says, as a believer in Jesus Christ, what I'm about to say is absolutely true. Secondly, the sincerity of what Paul is about to say is stated negatively. Verse 1, he says, I am not lying. There is nothing false, nothing feigned, no exaggeration in what I am about to tell you. And thirdly, the genuineness of what Paul is about to say is evidenced by a clear conscience before God. For he says in the end of verse 1, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul is speaking with a complete awareness that God is going to hold him accountable for everything that he says. Paul is very much aware that God is his judge and that he is going to have to stand before that judge and give account for everything that comes out of his mouth. And Paul says, as I am accountable to God, as the Holy Spirit is bearing witness with my conscience, I can tell you that I am clear in my conscience that what I'm telling you is true. Paul is leaving himself no wiggle room. There is no uh, way of getting around to what Paul is going to declare he believes wholeheartedly. One might ask the question, why these very strong affirmations before he, he tells us what he's about to say? Well, again, what he's about to say is tremendously uh, incredible. It's hard to believe. But it also reveals the difficulty that we all face. And that is when people question our motives. When, when people are uncertain as to what is our motivation for what we are saying, if they think that we have something against them, we are pretty helpless in changing their mind. The only thing that we can do is tell them what our true motive is, to tell them what our heart's concern is, to tell them how we really feel about them and our concern for them. We really don't have anything more than words in order to convey those great important truths. So Paul is using the most strenuous, the most ardent, the most heartfelt words that he can find to convey the idea of what he is about to say is absolutely true. So what is he about to say? Paul expresses an incredible concern for his fellow Jews that are lost. He expresses a credible concern for his fellow Jews that are lost. Paul's concern is personal. If you look at verse 2, he says that I 
have great sorrow. The emphasis on the word I. If you look at verse 3, for I could wish that I myself, all right, these are Paul's personal concerns that are being stressed. Paul's concern is fraught with emotion. If you look at verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. So we're looking at the word sorrow and anguish. This concern is fraught with emotion. The word sorrow connotes grief and suffering, such as the grief that one has at the death of a loved one. Here, Paul is mourning not the physical death of his fellow Jews, but he's mourning the spiritual death of his fellow Jews. He's mourning the consequences. He is grieving over what is going to be experienced in their hearts and lives. He's moved with grief. And the second is the word anguish, which speaks of intense pain or distress, the inner turmoil that grief produces. It is the heart felt hurt and pain. It pains, it hurts Paul to think of the lost condition of his fellow Jews. Third, Paul's concern is intense, for it says, I have great sorrow, and we might say a deep sorrow. And then Paul's concern is constant. Notice verse two, that I have great sorrow, and now the word unceasing, anguish. Unceasing. Paul's concern is not merely passing, momentary, or fleeting. Paul doesn't just every once in a while think about the lost condition of his fellow Jews. It isn't that sometimes as he's reading the word of God or sometimes as he is preaching, it comes to his mind that there are many of his fellow Jews who are lost. Paul's concern is long-lasting that does not abate. It is constantly on his heart and mind that many of his fellow Israelites are lost. Now that seems pretty incredible. As Paul talks about the concern that he has. It is an unceasing, deep grief, mourning, loss over his fellow Jews who aren't going to be saved. Application. Sometimes concern can be impersonal. It is merely academic or theological in which we have this head knowledge. We, we know that we should be concerned. Sometimes when we, we watch TV and we, we see a flood, we, we see a catastrophe, or we hear of starving children in, in other uh, countries, and it can bring a, a certain level of concern. And, and we might say, oh, that's awful, or, or that's terrible. But 20 minutes later, it's out of heart and mind. We're thinking about something else. We've moved on to another consideration. There's another concern that's before us. Paul never loses sight of the lost condition of his fellow Jews. This teaches us a, a very important lesson, and that is we should never be indifferent to the lost state of our friends and relatives. We should never get to the place where it doesn't bother us 
If our loved ones have never made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that should be with us continually. That should be on our hearts and our minds, let alone also people of around the world, all people. In the book of 3 John, it reads as follows. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So John says, I have no greater joy, I have no greater delight, I have no greater happiness. There is nothing more wonderful to me than the idea that my children, and probably there it's really talking about spiritual children as opposed to physical children, but my children are walking in the truth, that they are in a right relationship to God. Well, I would submit to you that the converse of that should also be true. If our greatest joy is that our children are walking with God, then our greatest sorrow or grief ought to be when our children are not walking with God. There should be nothing that would cause us greater concern in the life of our family members, our friends, than to think that they're lost. There is no more dire word that could be told to you. Life could not get worse than having loved ones who don't know Christ as their savior. There are many objections that people raise to the doctrine of election. And one of them is that they say that it causes people not to have a concern for the lost. As we have this introduction to this incredible doctrine, don't lose sight of Romans 9, 1 to 5. The doctrine of election should never harden the heart of anyone to the lost. But it should cause us to have a sense of great, great concern for those who don't know Christ as their Savior. Now we have the extent of Paul's concern for his lost brothers and sisters. It's one thing to say that he is concerned, and it's wonderful that it has this emotional effect upon him in which he is grieved, in which he is sorrowed. It's terrific that it's unceasing, and that it's deep, and it's personal, and it's real, but what does he do with that? How does it manifest itself? What is the practical application? What is produced in his heart and mind as a result of this concern? The answer comes in verse 3 and also helps us to understand why we have this introduction in verse 1 of what Paul says is absolutely true. For his concern is described in verse 3. For, that is illustrative of this concern. For, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So let's unpack that for a moment. Paul states that he would be willing to be cursed 
or condemned in the place of his fellow Jews. Notice verse 3. I can wish that I myself were accursed. The word accursed means to be cursed or condemned by God. He would be willing to bear their judgment if he could. Secondly, Paul would be willing to be permanently separated from Christ in the place of his fellow Jews. Verse 3. Accursed and cut off from Christ. The idea there is to be banished from Christ's presence forever. Paul says that he would be willing to experience a Christless eternity in exchange for the salvation of his fellow Jews. And then thirdly, Paul would be willing to be separated from Christ in place of Paul's ethnic people. Notice verse 3. To be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Literally, in place of my brothers. That he would bear the curse, that he would bear the punishment, that he would bear the separation from Christ in the place of his Jewish brethren if he could. It's important to realize that Paul is not speaking about his fellow believers. In verse 3, when he refers to my brothers, he makes it clear that when he's referring to my brothers, he's not talking about fellow believers. He's talking about fellow Jews, ethnic peoples, the physical descendants of Abraham and of Israel. For notice he says at the end of verse 3, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's talking about his relatives. He's talking about his fellow Jews. And Paul says, if it would be possible, I'd be willing to experience their judgment if they could be saved. Paul's concern mimics that of Moses in the Old Testament. Moses also provides us with an example of one who is willing to give up both the physical and spiritual life for the sake of his people. In Exodus chapter 32, we're given the response of Moses to the incident of the children of Israel making the golden calf, if you remember that story. And in Exodus chapter 32, Moses intercedes on behalf of his people that had made the golden calf, and he says this, and it came about the next day that Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from thy book which thou hast written. Moses says to God, please forgive them, and if you won't, blot me out of your book. And he's referring to the book of life. He's referring to this book that contains the names of those who are walking with God, those who have eternal life. And Moses says, 
If you won't forgive them, blot me out of your book. And God says that can't happen. Paul is willing to be condemned in the place of his fellow Jews, but of course it's impossible for him to do so. For it says in verse 3, for I could wish. The word wish is translated as a way of expressing a desire that cannot be fulfilled. Only Christ can bear the curse of others. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Only Christ could be cut off from a relationship for the sake of others. And of course, he was. About the third, about the ninth hour when Jesus hung upon the cross, he cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ could and did experience our judgment. Christ could and did uh, uh, become separated from God the Father. But only Christ can give himself on behalf of another person. Only Christ merits that kind of uh, position to be able to offer themselves in the place of someone else. He was sinless, Paul was not. He was ordained by God to do such a work. Paul was not. It's impossible for us to give our own lives for the salvation of someone else. But Paul says, if I could, I would. If I could, I would. Any wonder, Paul says three times, I tell you the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying is absolutely true. Now, I have to admit that every time I come to this place in the book of Romans, there are, there are certain places when I read in the scriptures, I just kind of lower my head and acknowledge my unworthiness. I must admit to you that personally I cannot fathom the willingness to give up my salvation for somebody else. I'm not that selfless. Christ did it for me. Moses and Paul were willing to do it for others. And we are told that we're to love God with all our hearts and all our soul and all our, our might and we are to love our neighbors ourselves. I'm just admitting before you that I'm not there. But now we have to ask ourselves the second question. Because maybe you're saying that you're not there. Maybe you are there. And if you are, praise God for the work that the Spirit of God has done in your heart. But if you are not there, my question is, but to what extent are we willing to sacrifice that others will be saved? To what extent are we really willing to go so that our friends, our relatives, 
come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? What are we willing to do? What are we willing to suffer? What are we willing to experience? Are we willing to experience their rejection? And perhaps the misconception that we don't really love them or care for them or we wouldn't say such judgmental things as the fact that they are lost. Paul is willing to stand firm on the truth of the gospel, all knowing that they need to hear, understand, repent. Are we willing to make the gospel clear to our relatives, our friends? Are we willing to challenge them on it? Are we willing to confront them? Are we willing to suffer financially, emotionally, whatever the case may be? Maybe there are people who live far away, and it's not the easiest thing for us to be in contact with them. And then, of course, it goes beyond our relatives. It goes to a lost world. What are we willing to do in order to see the lost come to know Christ? And if this morning you don't have a concern for the lost, if you look at and if you're honest with yourself and you say, you know, I really don't do much, I haven't shared my faith with very many people. I have not witnessed to my friends, my relatives, my, my neighbors, the people that I come in contact with. If you don't have a concern, don't hide behind the doctrine of election. Don't simply say God is sovereign and God is going to save whom he wills. We'll get to chapter 10 where Paul prays. People, God uses means. If our understanding of the doctrine of election causes us not to be concerned for the lost, then we don't understand it then we've got it wrong. Then we have to go back to ground zero and ask ourselves again, what does this doctrine teach? And I'm going to be going through it painstakingly slow. But this introduction this morning is absolutely essential. And that is that we need to have a concern for the lost. That's our duty. That's our responsibility. Third, the reason for Paul's concern and anguish Paul is sorrowful because of the squandering of spiritual privileges by the Israelites who are lost. The squandering of spiritual privileges by those who are lost. If you look at verse uh, 4, it says, They are Israelites. When foreigners referred to these people, They often called them Jews. But when Jews referred to themselves, 
Most often they refer to themselves as Israelites, stressing their special position in relationship to Israel and to God. But Paul is going to teach that they squandered the privilege that they had experienced. And there are at least eight of these privileges described in verses four and five. First, they squandered, wasted the privilege of being associated with God. For it says in verse four, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. They had a unique relationship with God, though it was not a saving relationship. And one might wonder, how can that be? How can one have a unique relationship to God that's not a saving relationship? Well, let me give you the New Testament example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is writing to individuals who are contemplating divorce. And as he writes, he says this. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So we need to ask ourselves, what does it mean that an unbeliever can be holy? The word holy means to be set apart, to be sanctified, to be in a unique relationship to another person. Paul is saying that a person who is a believer, who is married to an unbeliever, is in a unique, special relationship. They have blessings that are going to be encountered simply by being married to a believer or a child who hasn't yet come to faith, has a unique opportunity of growing up in a Christian home. There are privileges associated with those that are part of a Christian family, just as there were privileges being associated with the Jewish family of the Old Testament. People are praying for us. We are instructed in the word of God. There are many blessings, and now Paul is going to enumerate them, and we can relate to them as we think about a Christian family or a family with one person who is a born-again Christian and how that affects the rest of the unsaved in their family. For notice the second one. They squandered the privilege of experiencing God's presence. They are Israelites, verse 4. To them belong the adoption, the glory. This is referring to the Shekinah glory. Every Israelite, whether they were born again or not, had the privilege of experiencing the Shekinah glory. That was the cloud that went before the children of Israel in the wilderness that guided them during the day and the fiery pillar at night. Every Israelite saw the cloudy pillar. Every Israelite saw the fiery pillar. Every Israelite had that experience. 
Third, they squandered the privilege of sharing in the blessings of God's covenants. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants. Note the word covenant is plural. They had witnessed the faithful dealing of God with his people. The Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, all the covenants of God in the Old Testament. The children of Israel were able to witness God's faithfulness to them. They were able to see that God is a covenant-keeping God. God keeps his word. Fourth, they squandered the privilege of having received the law of God. What a blessing that was. Notice verse 4. The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. Back in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, when Paul was talking about the lost state of the Jewish people, how they were no better off than uh, the Gentile, in Romans chapter 3, the question is asked, what should we say then? What advantage has the Jew? His answer was, much in every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. They had the word of God. They were instructed in the law. They learned about the sacrifices. They learned about the commands. They learned what righteousness consisted of and what it did not consist of. Next, the worship. They went, they offered the sacrifices. They experienced it. They saw it. <coughs> and fifthly, the promises. The promises. All that God said he would do for his people if they but believe and trust in him. And then seventh, Paul is sorrowful because of some of the Jewish brothers and sisters had squandered the privilege of a godly heritage. Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs. The patriarchs, they had the religious fathers. They had Abraham, they had Isaac, they had Jacob. They had these ancestors who were godly individuals and who had served God. And then lastly, they squandered the privilege of having been taught about the Christ. If you look at verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So here is Paul talking about Christ, talking about the need to trust in Christ, talking about the need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, Christ came from your own heritage. Christ came from your physical lineage, and yet you have rejected him. This is not hard for us to apply in our day. For you see, one of the saddest things is when a child grows up in a Christian home and yet fails to repent, fails to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal savior. They have many of the same advantages that Paul just spoke of. They have the advantage of worship of sitting through service after service after service. They have advantage of hearing the law of God, of hearing the word of God, of hearing the gospel. 
time and time again. They know what it means to believe. They know what it means to be a sinner. They know that Jesus Christ can forgive sins. What a shame if people with all that instruction, with that experience, with godly mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers and a heritage of faith, and they still don't accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But this also teaches us an incredibly important truth. And that is you can have all those experiences and still be lost. You aren't in a right relationship with God just because your parents are. You aren't in a right relationship with God just because you come to church and experience worship. You aren't in a right relationship with God just because you take communion. You aren't in a right relationship with God just because people are praying for you. You aren't in a right relationship with God just because you know the way of salvation. Just because you can parrot it back. You aren't a child of God simply because you know your Bible. And the saddest thing is when religious people fail to trust in Jesus Christ. It's not about being religious. And Paul is going to go on and talk about the Jews, how they had a form of godliness, but they did not submit themselves unto a righteousness which comes from God. They didn't come to a place of accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior, many of them. So my application this morning is quite simple, and it's twofold. First, I fear for anyone here this morning who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Only you know in your innermost heart what your relationship is to God. You may have everybody fooled. When I was a child, my mother put great pressure upon me to accept the Lord as my Savior. I told her I had when I hadn't. I knew that I hadn't. I fooled her, but I certainly didn't fool God. And I came to realize I needed Jesus as my savior. There may be everybody in this church convinced that you know the Lord, but deep down inside you know you don't. Then I say to you, don't squander all these privileges you've had for all these years. Don't squander the knowledge you have of the gospel. But today, ask Jesus to be your savior. Experience the forgiveness of sins and the peace of God. And the second is, if we have loved ones that we know haven't ever trusted in Christ, or we have loved ones that we aren't sure about. Let it impact us.
Let it grieve us. Let us understand what is the proper response to their lost condition. It's not indifference. We don't glorify God by indifference. Jesus was not indifferent. Jesus, when he was approaching Jerusalem, when he was approaching the crucifixion, paused. And as he looked upon the city, he said, how often I would have gathered you under my wings and you would not. How often I would have embraced you, but you would not come. And then it tells us that he wept over the city. He's weeping over the lost. Those that rejected his salvation. Don't have some kind of mystery construed idea that we are responding to God's sovereignty in a God-honoring way by simply accepting the idea of loads of people being lost. That's not the response we're to have. That's not what election teaches. We should be willing to sacrifice for the sake of those who don't know Christ. We're going to sing a final hymn that says, Give me a passion for souls, dear Lord. One thing that I would really encourage you to be praying for this morning as, as an application to this message. May God grant us a greater concern for the lost. May God give us a greater hurt, sorrow, pain, suffering for those who don't know Christ as our Savior. Pray that God would give us sleepless nights as we think about children and grandchildren who don't know the Lord. I'm not trying to add to your pain. At the same point, I'm not trying to take it away either. For such a thought is horrific. And so we should be seeking to do what is ever in our power to bring people to Christ. I'm going to be praying that God would increase my desire. I have told you openly, not ragdociously, ashamedly, I'm not at the place where I would say I would give up my salvation for someone else. I'm praying that God would bring me to that place. But until then, may God increase my desire to see people come to faith in Christ. Will you pray that this morning? that God would increase your desire to see people come to faith in Christ, and that together as a church we might be willing to suffer more in order to see people come to Christ, that we would make conscious decisions that make it, it perhaps uncomfortable for us or uneasy for us in order to see more people come to Christ.
May that be our prayer. And again, if you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, please, today, trust in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. How that through him we can experience the forgiveness of God and know the peace of God. Lord, we, we know the consequences, uh, the eternal lostness, the reality of a hell for those who have never trusted in Jesus this day as their Savior. So I pray, O oh God, that you would do a work among us, and if there's anyone here who has never received Christ as their Lord and Savior, that you would bring them unto yourself. O oh Lord, grant them faith. I pray that they would repent. I pray that they would trust in you. And so I offer to you again anew and afresh, if you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, today will you make it the day in which you believe in Jesus Christ? Would you quickly raise your hand just so I can see it? I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not going to embarrass you. But I want to know that you have made a commitment to receive Christ as your Savior this morning. Quickly, would you raise your hand if, if that is your desire this morning to know Christ as your personal Savior? Would you raise your hand? Keep it up so I can see it. And to all those who know the Lord Jesus, will you pray today? that God would give you a greater concern for the lost, that God would remove apathy, that, that God would, would remove any kind of hardness of heart, and that we really would be emotionally moved, distressed over the thought of people entering a Christless eternity. And, oh, Lord, would you move us to a place where we would even be willing to give up our own salvation in order to see others saved. And until then, Lord, move us. Move us dramatically. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.